the policy thrust has been send everyone to college. Right. And the problem is, is that not everyone is equipped to go to college, right? That mm-hmm. if college means anything, um, that if it's doing what we want it to do, if it's going to fulfill the educational function, the social function it was meant to, um, it has to exclude some people because it, it, you know, the whole point is to be a screening mechanism for people who are smart enough and who have a certain kinds of cognitive skills to navigate certain kinds of jobs. Um, and so the, the book is, is for saying, let's get real. There are there is such a thing as people who are smarter than other people um, who how, you know, and again, defined in intelligence in the terms that like the market currently cares about. Certainly that's true. Um, and since that's true, we have to stop trying to force everybody into the same narrow uh, lane. And we need to find more varied ways for people to be productive and to be uh, effective uh useful people within the economy so that they can secure a better life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, an, it, it's that argument, and then it's a long discussion of ways that we could make our society more palatable to those people. What's up, y'all? Thanks for joining me for another episode of Politically Non-Binary. I'm your host, Ariel Isaac Norman, and my guest today is writer, academic, and author Freddie DeBoer. Freddie is a writer that I've been following for a long time. One of my smartest friends turned me on to him several years ago, and I really enjoy his writing. There's all kinds of stuff in his life. Some people are aware that he was like, you know, quote unquote, canceled a few years ago when he was going through some mental illness shit. But I love canceled people. If you're canceled, you've probably done some, uh, some brave stuff and or bad stuff, but I don't believe that there are bad people. There are very few bad people. You, like, you could be called a bad person if you're like a sociopath who don't give a fuck. Um, but other than that, most people at least mean well. And also Freddie's writing is perspicacious. I think that's a good word. He's uh, uh, very articulate and able to voice things that, that need to be said um, and need to be said from people who are on the left. He is a self-described Marxist, but like not in an annoying way that doesn't make sense. You know, he actually he has read all the stuff and knows what he's talking about, it seems, and isn't, you know, he's not just like a pie in the sky 22 year old who's like, you know, comes from rich parents and says Marxist stuff. But in reality, they have a nepotistic life situation and aren't doing anything to actual actually promote economic justice. You know, like he's uh smarter than that <laughs> and he's written a book called the cult of smart so that thing that you heard in the beginning was him describing the basic premise of the book because when we started our conversation we jumped right into discussing some of the criticism of it and so i wanted y'all to hear what the book was about for those of you who haven't read it yet before we just jump into the criticism of it um so throughout the conversation I use the opportunity to ask some questions because, like, I know some stuff about people's economic ideas, but I also don't know a ton. I just kind of hear people talking about socialism and this, that, or the other, and hear a lot of people's opinions. But I got to ask Freddie, what is socialism? What is communism, actually? Not just, you know, because a lot of people are like, well, socialism's cool, but communism doesn't communism's bad and it's like yeah but what are the actual definitions of these things because like everyone's just thinking of particular instances when 
you know, authoritarian dictators took over and did a bad job of them or whatever. But like, what is socialism? What is communism? What is democratic socialism? What should we actually be aiming for in America? What can work here? And how could we be taking active steps to realizing those goals? We also talked about what's wrong with the Democratic Party and uh, liberals problem with the iron law of institutions. That was one of the things that uh, Freddie brought up. We talked about identitarians and their unpopular stances, what to do about that. Ended it off with an interesting thing about the unwieldy politics of the latest Matrix movie. That led into a whole thing. I thought about making it Patreon, but mm, it, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> I think it's I think it's time to just put stuff out there a little more, so I'm going to leave it in. And yeah, it was a really great conversation. It was fun to ask these questions. I am, so I... I recorded this conversation a couple weeks ago when I was in New York and got to be with Freddie in person. Um, but then subsequently I changed the idea of the podcast. We're going to start doing it where the idea will be that my guest will come on and will have a position or an opinion that they try to make, they, that they make their case for trying to convince me of it as well as other listeners. But I'll be of course, stand in for, the listeners. And so people will come on and make their case for some kind of socio-political idea that they have. And then I will, of course, question it to varying extents. It's, uh, I'm, so sometimes I get to ask questions, even if they're not my questions, but I'll ask questions that other people might have. And I also, the thing is like, I think I'm well suited for this because I am sympathetic to a lot of different viewpoints um, from all over the political, the socio-political spectra. I, it's pretty easy for me to find lots of areas of agreement. It's also pretty easy for me to find lots of areas of, you know, to play devil's advocate, to question, to poke at people's ideas. So that will be the new format starting in the next episode that will come out, which is a really good one. Uh, I got to talk to someone who is attracted to children and doesn't act on it, uh, realized that she has an attraction to children and wanted to talk about non-offending pedophiles and how we might do society better to not only make things less horrible for people who have a, a, a horrendous struggle of being attracted to children, but also how to make it the world safer for children and it really wound up as much as it's like fun for me as a comedian and someone who likes fucked up shit to be like cool i get to interview a pedophile it's also it wound up being a very empathetic conversation um that i think could do a lot of good to help everyone adults and children and everyone and not just people who struggle with pedophilic attraction but also the rest of us um it was a very cool conversation it it was it was funny and it was like uh, wild to be able to have that, but also really beautifully uh, focused on how we can make the world a better place. So uh, I'm very excited to edit that podcast and put it out. I think it's probably going to be like two parts and a Patreon Substack thing because uh, we we recorded for like two and a half hours. So anyway, that'll be the next episode. And so that was that, and that's the first one that I recorded where, yeah, we're doing this thing where she came on and basically wanted to argue the position that we can be a lot more 
empathetic to people who are attracted to kids um, and help them live better lives without having to be in complete fear um, while still not hurting kids and also how we can help kids uh, to, to be able to be more autonomous and safe. So anyway, that'll come out in a couple of weeks and I'm very excited for all of that. Um, but for today, it's so cool that I get to share with y'all this conversation that I had with Freddie. I learned a lot and you will too, unless you already know a ton about this stuff already, then maybe you won't. But, uh, if you're interested in what the hell late stage capitalism is or what to do about it, then, uh, I think you'll enjoy this conversation and I will check back in at the end, uh, after, <laughs> after a lot of education and some juicy shit at the end, I'll check back in with y'all and let you know how you can support the podcast and find more from Freddie and me. Hi, I'm Freddie DeBoer. Uh, I'm a writer and an academic, and I have a newsletter on Substack. Uh, and my my first book came out in 2020, which is uh, called The Cult of Smart. Yeah, I was just reading on the way over um, some people's criticism of that book. Mm-hmm. There's <laughs> been a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. That's something that's so interesting. You know, like the more famous it's successful, whatever you become, the more you're going to have all this criticism from and from increasingly intelligent people, too. Mm-hmm. At first, the criticism might come from people who you can <laughs> dismiss pretty easily. And then mm-hmm. as, you know, you get more successful, then the criticism is going to get harder and yeah. harsher. So how what what do you find to be the best critique so, so there's stuff you know I, there's a, a variety of things one thing that crops up but over and over again is people are annoyed at how many times i have to make the point that it's not a bell curve style pseudo scientific racist book do um, you think the bell curve is a pseudo scientific racist book? um i think that the bell curve uh, if you actually read it, which mm-hmm. I have, most people who have criticized it haven't, um, it is pretty circumspect about avoiding coming out and saying that the difference between black and white uh, in academic performance and IQ, et cetera, is genetic in origin. Um, they kind of just leave the door open. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that the marketing for the book, the way that Charles Murray talked about the book, the other one, Hernstein, I think that he died fairly soon right after it was published if i remember i think correctly. so um charles Morrow's later work i mean he is definitely he does not um avoid uh making it explicit that he thinks that that's true mm-hmm. so the book itself as a text i think can be forgiven uh for from for not saying like he's explicitly that but it is clearly playing in those in those waters uh, but anyway but i say several times in the book that that's not what i'm arguing because it's not um, primarily for empirical reasons. Um, but uh, people get annoyed that I have to say it, you know, two or three times in yeah. the book. Which I would just say, um, I was a first-time author working from one of the five biggest publishers in the world. Um, I had recently um, experienced a personal scandal that um, I'm sure that they were already nervous about. And the publishing house, look, they were great. St. Martin's was very good to me. But uh, they were clearly nervous. And so I wanted to ward off that criticism uh, uh, the best I can. So maybe that was repetitive. Um, the other big one is also not my fault. Um, there's people complain that I didn't engage with the science sufficiently. Uh, I have explained on my newsletter before, uh, you know, there was 
something like six to eight Microsoft Word pages that I had written on the science that had been included in the in the initial manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, publisher said, it's too much science. The average reader doesn't want to read this and got rid of it. Was the average reader your target audience? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they really wanted to sell this as like a, you know, trade book that was going to move copies. I didn't, unfortunately. Um, but um, well, and real quick, why don't you say what your the basic premise of your book yeah? Was. So the the book is um, is a complicated argument, but the overall point is just that um, our system is set up to provide economic uh, security to a particular type of person, a type of person who can succeed in academics as traditionally conceived. Um, who can go to college, who can, you know, go to Stanford and get a job as a, a computer scientist, whatever. Um, and it's been leaving behind a lot of people who can't do that. And you can contrast that with a, a period of uh, the American economy for decades, which was far from perfect, but um, <clears throat> had a, such a thing as like a path to middle class um, existence for People who didn't go to college. Yeah. Um, you know, the famous factory at the edge of town and Bruce Springsteen sings a lot of songs about how those closed down. Um, you know, due to policy choices, um, automation and offshoring closed all those things down. And now we don't have a reliable means for people without college degrees to get middle class incomes. Yeah. Um, and so the, uh, the policy thrust has been send everyone to college. Right. And the problem is, is that not everyone is equipped to go to college, right? That mm-hmm. if college means anything, um, that if it's doing what we want it to do, if it's going to fulfill the educational function, the social function it was meant to, um, it has to exclude some people because it, it, you know, the whole point is to be a screening mechanism for people who are smart enough and who have a certain kinds of cognitive skills to navigate certain kinds of jobs. Um, and so the, the book is, a, is set for saying, let's get real. There are there is such a thing as people who are smarter than other people um, who how, you know, and again, defined in intelligence in the terms that like the market currently cares about. Certainly that's true. Um, and since that's true, we have to stop trying to force everybody into the same narrow uh, lane and we need to find more varied ways for people to be productive and to be um, uh, effective, uh, useful people within the economy so that they can secure a better life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, an, it, it's that argument, and then it's a long discussion of ways that we could make our society more palatable to those people. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the – I've read some article on the way over here where there was – the guy was saying – because, you know, I read your book – a, a while ago now, um, but the guy was saying that you were arguing that we need to put even more people into this college system that's failing everyone. And I'm like, but that that's, isn't, I don't think no, that's, that's what you that's, said. That's not correct. So that was very strange. He yeah. also said something about how, you know, all of these people who the system seems to work for, the one you're saying that, you know, that, that everyone, well, that he's saying you're saying that everyone should, should get into, um, aren't necessarily that happy. So why would we want to? give everyone that life. And you know, he talked about how relationships and meaning and community, whatever are like more important than he's like, once you get above $75,000 or so, which I'm like, yeah, but it's currently like 55% of this country makes less than $75,000 a year. Right. So it's such a strange thing to, for this person to have said right. um, anyway, but um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, that, that's a very strange criticism. I, um, the, here's the point. Um, 
Not everybody is cut out for that, the, the Stanford to Google pipeline. Not everybody wants to have that kind of life. It doesn't reflect what they're strong at or the um, kind of... Uh, hello. Hey. Hey, we're recording, babe. That's all good. Yeah. yeah it's good. I'm okay with having it's little hellos on here. Right. <laughs> um, uh, it's okay, babe. Um, we, uh, we just... Not everybody is cut out for it. Not everybody wants it. And it doesn't make sense to try to force everyone to that. So we need to broaden the, the different ways. I mean, one of the things I've been saying for years is like there's um, in American life right now, there's many more ways to be a loser than to be a winner. Yeah. Right. You know, and, that, and that's true. Even of people, like if we wanted to broaden out from just like having secu- you know, material security, people who uh, go to work at white collar jobs, you know, middle managers in offices where they push paper around. You know, we have completely ironized that as a society, right? You have shows like The Office, movies like Office Space or, or Fight Club or American Beauty, you know. Um, we've got this really recurring sense that, like, um, even The Matrix, like, that the going to an office and pushing paper and being a kind of meaningless um, apparatchik within some corporate structure is, like, something to be ridiculed. Yeah. Right? We've ironized that lifestyle. But this gets back to the sense of like, okay, so that's another set of ways to be a loser, right? Yeah. Because if you don't have any money, you're a loser. Yeah. Um, if you if, make money in the wrong way, then you're a sellout and a, and, and a, and a chump, right? Yeah. Um, and so like, you, just, you start to sort of look at like the various means to sort of get to, you know, a comfortable life. And it's we just... We cannot created new ideas about how to be the kind of person who people say, hey, that person's a winner, right? Yeah. Um, and, like, you kind of have to have a lifestyle like mine, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that, like, I make a lot of money um, and I'm a creative, quote-unquote mm-hmm. creative, um, and I set my own schedule, you know. Um, and the thing is, number one, I have no idea if this is going to last. But number two, um, like... You just you can't have a whole system based on having people like this. Mm. So I want to like expand the sense of like okay, everyone is good at something, but not everyone is good at the same things. And I I include myself in this. Um, I could never have been a programmer. Yeah, and I know that for a fact because um, in grad school I started to get interested in a lot of this text processing research where I would take these big corpuses of data and I would run them through um, programs that would identify some of the statistical features of these things and try to find relationships. Um, It became clear pretty early on that like the -the off-the-shelf tools I had access to weren't doing the things that I wanted to. So people said, well, for that work, you got to do Python. You know, Python is really built for that. So Python is a uh, programming language for people who don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got a couple of Python books, and I worked really hard. And there was a period of a few months when I was doing my Python diligently. And, you know, I got to a point where I could scratch out, like, a program, like, figure out how to build a program doing the things that my book told me it was, like, a, a thing. But it would take me, like, three times as long as the book suggested, and it wasn't very good, and it was buggy as shit. And it was just it was just a moment where I had to say, like, you know, why am I pretending that I'm going to be good at the this? The learning curve is too steep. Yeah. For- My brain does not work that way. Yeah. I could never have been a research physicist. Never. Like, the, that level of math, math will always be beyond me. That's why we have 8 billion people. That's why we have 8 billion people. Um, and so, you know... 
the first thing is like getting past the politicized notion that everyone can do everything mm-hmm. and otherwise it's you know uh conservatism eugenics or whatever um but then saying like the whole point is like okay find what people can do well and let's find a way to build a society in which they can do it be productive um where they can uh you know, contribute something and have like a comfortable, you know, materially secure life. That's the whole point, the whole draw for me. Um, you know, in my, in, in my system, you know, the way that I, I see things, a lot of colleges close because a lot of colleges exist, um, to bring marginalized, marginal students in, um, who don't want to be there and aren't particularly good at it. Um, and that's just sort of just, you know, what they exist for. And like, that kind of institution doesn't need to exist. Let's mm-hmm. find something more productive for those people to do. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like the more conversations I have with people, most people do agree with that. And there's a, a growing collective understanding that college is a failure on all these levels and that a lot of people should be going to trade schools, for right. instance, just in the most, in the simplest form of this is like, yeah, why don't we just give people some useful skills for a couple of years? We could do that and then they could start living their lives instead of everyone. Remember who said this? Maybe it was from your book about how like the idea of like these bachelor's degrees is really just so that, you know, the wealthy kids would be able to speak at cocktail parties with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and now so many people, especially, I mean, I have a degree in psychology, right? And I was going to go into academia until I realized, <laughs> okay, right, yeah. that seems like a nightmare. So um, now I'm a comedian, you know, yeah. but, and it's funny too, because I, was very um, good at math and uh, at computer programming and everything. You know, I was like three years ahead in math and since I was in, you know, what, sixth grade. And, and as my SAT scores are wonderful, and yet I still don't have really a place in the economy. You know, uh, hopefully one day, you know, I'm building toward where you're at, which is that kind of independence. But like you say, like not everybody can do this. Um, so it's like it's failing for people even who are good at, the, at a lot of this mm-hmm. college stuff. And, you know, not only that, but even the people who are successful, you know, in their careers and, and even have cool jobs, a lot of them are still have the highest rates of suicide and depression. Yeah. And or they just some of them get so um, once they're if you're rich enough, then, you know, you just wind up going so steeply up the hedonic treadmill that you become a pedophile or something. You yeah. know? I think that's right. maybe what happens to some of those people. So, yeah, it's a failure on every level. But like. There's always this problem of, you know, and one of the criticisms of your book is like, well, you have a utopic vision, but how do we actually get there given? But I mean, I, I think it's to point out that like um, it, the option, like it's it's not utopic to point out that the current system isn't working. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I think it's really important. You know, there are many tragedies um Associated with college right now, with, with college right now, there's there's many problems that I would that I would say that emerge from the way that it is. Um, people mostly talk about the student loan debt crisis as being a crisis of people who get the degree mm-hmm. and then go and they you know they have the huge student loan debt. Um, the real crisis is there are millions of people who go to school, take on loans to pay for it, discover they can't do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, they struggle the whole time that they're there. Colleges spend enormous sums of money uh, to remediate them. So remediation costs, particularly in, in community colleges, have been going up and up and up. Right? Um, 
Why? Well, for one reason is we've artificially increased the high school uh, graduation rate by just graduating people who don't have any business graduating from high school. So now the community colleges are expected to take to shoulder that burden. And these people eventually take on the debt and they drop out. Mm-hmm. So now they've got the opportunity cost of a couple of years in which uh, they could have been doing something else other than going to school. And now they've got a bunch of student loan debt and they have no degree to help them pay for it. Yeah. There are millions and millions of people in that position. And there are people who get the degree and never use it. And right. so also have the debt and spend all four years right. wasting their time, essentially. I mean, but th- reading some good books. Right. And the thing you have to understand is that, like, look, like, um, visions of success. So I keep talking about this, you know, the sort of like, go to an elite tech school and then go to work at like some Silicon Valley firm, um, you know, MIT to, to Microsoft or whatever. Um, those success stories are so well remunerated. They're, they're very hard work and, and you know, intensely competitive. But um, they make so much money that people say, oh, yeah, I'll go and become a computer programmer. Mm-hmm. But, um, the, you know, the median student is not going to those firms. Okay. Yeah. The the median student who goes to State U and is a Beeb student and, and gets a, a, com- a computer science job from a totally nondescript public university, they are not competitive in those kind of jobs, yeah. right? Um, it it drives people crazy that I say this, but the fact is, there's a lot of there's a a, a big problem with long term unemployment in computer science generally, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, you know I. I was uh, in grad school in my PhD program. I was walking um, down the quad with um, a friend of mine who was a uh, brilliant uh, electrical engineering uh, PhD student uh, from China. And, you know, they were having one of these career days when all these firms were showing up at Purdue. And, you know, Purdue is a a fairly celebrated STEM school, you know, engineering, computer science, et cetera. Um, And there was all these tech firms like trying to recruit students. And I said, uh, you know, I said to my friend, I said, you know, wow, it looks like things are really good for our, our STEM students. And he laughed and said, but these firms all want to hire the same 50 students, mm. right? They were not there to get the median Purdue grad. Right. They wanted to get the brilliant top 5%. And so um, to say that it's utopian to describe sort of the society that I've had um, We've right lowered now, our standards for utopia. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, you, you, you have a pot pipeline now where um, – the, the 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 policy pressure has been so intense on high schools to raise graduation rates for decades that the high schools have succeed have successfully done so by just kicking the can by kicking the can by by lowering standards absurdly we have had if you look at a graph of graduation rates we've had this tremendous improvement in graduation rates in the past 5 10 20 years um, there's absolutely oh, yeah there's absolutely no um underlying educational data to justify why that would happen. Yeah. In other words... Well, it feels good to get the numbers up. You can look at the NAEP data. You can look at the SAT data. You can look at the state standardized test data. These things are not demonstrating that students are now dramatically, entering senior year, are now dramatically um, more advanced than they used to be. So why would we have dramatic improvements to the the graduation rate? We have dramatic uh, 
improvements to the graduation rate because people pressed on that metric so hard. Mm -hmm. And they said to schools, if you don't get that up, we're going to start to cost you your funding. That the schools are cheating. Yeah. They're bending the rules. They're, they're passing kids who they know uh, can't pass. And we shuffle them into uh, co the college system. They're not competitive. So they're not going to elite schools. They're going to schools that uh, have limited financial aid options. The aid options that they do get are almost all loans. Yeah. They take on loans. Um, they find that they, in fact, cannot pass college. Uh, and so they drop out. Uh, that's a factory of sadness, yeah. right? And, um, and that's just for the, for the, you know, the system for people who do even make it into college at some point. Plenty of people self-select out. They know that they're not college materials, so they don't try to go. And they find that, you know, the, uh, the most attractive thing in their hometown to be is to, uh, get a bogus disability claim. And live on that, and then get addicted to oxycontin, and you know, yeah. whatever. Like the to to me, it's like you're, you're calling my vision utopian, but it's like the the reality is so disordered and so broken um, that you know, and, and even even like stay away from like the really extreme cases. You just have a lot of kids who you know they're just wasting their time. Yeah, right. Um, you have people who are. Going to programs that have nothing to do with what they'll do eventually for work. They'll go get a nondescript job at, you know, like nationwide insurance or something as a low-level white-collar worker, which is fine. I'm not knocking that. But they'll be doing things that utilize none of the skills they used in college, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, the, the value to nationwide of the degree is 100% a signaling mechanism that um, they have minimal, you know, skills in delaying gratification and doing work, et cetera. Yeah. So there's, it's just a hugely inefficient system that is pushing people. It's creating all the wrong incentives for people to do things that make no sense, that waste time, um, to create an economy in which we still have this, this terrible winner-takes-all problem. Right. Yeah. What you're really talking about isn't utopia. It's just a functional society. Yeah. Right. I mean, and so I feel like a lot of people just have a general idea of, like, why can't we look more like Norway or one of those? Um, but you still call yourself a Marxist, right? Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you to be a Marxist? Like really? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, I've, I've written a bunch about the fact that, um, mainstream perception of what Marxism is, is very wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, unfortunately that's largely because people who self identify as Marxists, many of them don't have the slightest idea what is actually in the work. Um, so yeah, to start at the beginning, Marxism is a form of, Radical scientific materialism. Okay, um, you know you may have heard like the 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 derogatory term, you know, facts and logic guy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Marx and Engels were classic facts and logic guys. So you, Marxism is a wonks philosophy, um, and, and the 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 basic idea of Marxism lies in like the emancipatory potential of reason that we can think our way out of these social structures, right? That if we, if we are smart and we understand the world as it really is, that's the materialist element, right? That we're, we're looking at the world, um, not through the, the prism of any kind of mysticism or religion, um, but, but in a clear eyed, uh, sort of hard nosed way, then we can understand it sufficiently to prompt change. Um, and so <laughs> Marxism is a way to understand how history develops over time. The whole point was to be the science of history, 
to study history in a way that's no different than the way that you would study um, <clears throat> biology. Um, it is a set of very abstract and nerdy economics. So I meet people now who call themselves Marxists, and they have no opinion on, for example, the, ra- uh, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, which is just an absolutely central pit- piece of theory within the heart of Marxism. They've never even heard of it. So, will you explain it? Sure. Yeah. Um, the idea is just that under the, once again, tell tell me the name again. Uh, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. So, um, Marx believed that um, capitalism will fall. Uh, the revolution is inevitable because of the internal contradictions of capitalism. That there are things within capitalism that uh, <clears throat> sort of sow the seeds for its own demise. And that, um, in particular, uh, capitalism uh, demands uh, that profits rise greater and greater over time, um, but that, in fact, over a long enough time scale, um, it's inevitable that uh, profits will fall because uh, workers will demand more and more of a percentage of uh, the profits, um, uh, like the labor costs will rise over time, uh, <clears throat> where even with the tremendous sort of productive potential of capitalism to improve things, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the, you can't outrun, uh, the, uh, so the, I guess to back up a second, like the labor theory of value, which is the notion that, um, value comes from profit is derived from the workers and not any other part of the calculation um, of how profit works um, is the, the core of Marxism. Uh, and um, the labor theory of value stated in another way is what he calls the rate of exploitation, which is that if you have a commodity and you can, if you can, can create that commodity with workers and with raw materials and with factories, etc., you turn around, you pay, pay for it at a profit, right? Um, capitalism is all about equivalent exchange, but you're taking something that had a bunch of equivalents beforehand and that turns into something that's worth more afterwards. Yeah. The magic of profit that that he calls that the rate of exploitation. Right. That the only way that that could possibly emerge is from the, uh, <clears throat> the workers creating that value. And so the, the moral critique that's inherent to Marxism, uh, although it's not very much of a moralizing philosophy, but the moral critique is that the people who are responsible for the creation of profit are precisely the ones who don't get to participate in sharing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, he felt that um, labor costs will go up. Uh, you will hit a natural point in which you cannot reduce um, other costs that are associated with the creation of profit. And so profit will go down. I feel like we've had mostly a stalling on actually getting labor costs up in this country, but we do keep making the prices lower and lower. Well, I mean, so it's, it's interesting. I mean, Which obviously... It's kind of the same thing in a way. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously there's a lot of... Um, it's a com- Well, it's complicated. Um, we have seen um, something like what Marx was talking about uh, in terms of like education or healthcare or all kinds of administrative costs where you have... Um, just little opportunity for efficiency gains, but over time wages have to go up in order that people can like, you know, have homes and pay the rent and stuff. Um, and so you have, you know, ballooning costs of, uh, of healthcare and, uh, education and various other administrative services. What's interesting about that is that, you know, 
all the famous Marx examples are ter- explained in terms of like a factory. Mm-hmm. But one place where we've seemed to find just limitless um, efficiency gains is in like physical goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, my girlfriend and I went to Target yesterday and there was a 70 inch television for less than $600. Yeah. Which is insane. I right? don't even know how big that's a large. Anyway, yeah. wow. I don't know that those that that theory is correct. Um, but I, I suspect that it's correct. Um, but what I do know is you have to have an opinion on it to be a Marxist. And most people who put hammer and sickle at arbitrage on their Twitter don't have an op- op- opinion on that. Um, to be a Marxist to me means, um, first of all, to understand that exploitation is the fundamental, uh, uh, relationship within capitalism, that there's no such thing as non-exploitative labor under capitalism. So if you were a, were someone who started a business and as you hired employees, you chose to pay them and yourself the exact same amount of profit from whatever you guys were achieving, mm-hmm. selling, doing for people, wouldn't that be non-exploitative, but so, no one does it? So what do you do? As the boss, okay. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, the boss. And when we're talking about capital in the uh, in the uh, Marxist sense, the boss's uh, share is that he or she owns the stuff, right. right? The means of production. So I own the factory. Now I might be going around, you know, doing a lot of odd jobs around the factory, but fundamentally, my stake, the reason I'm involved in the transaction at all, is because I own the factory. Right. So when I say, okay, I'm going to buy, uh, you know, raw materials for the widgets at $5 a piece. Um, and we're going to, you know, factor in the cost of the machinery at another $5 a piece. And then I'm going to pay the workers $5 a piece. So it costs $15. Now I'm going to charge 20, right? Um, you know, my value to that transaction is mere ownership. Right. right? Initially, you needed to invest either your parents' money or stake your future. People get loans, whatever. Like there are various ways that people have that capital. And so sometimes people really are, you know, putting their own skin on the line. Um, Although, you know, rich and powerful people have ways to make sure that they don't bear any of the consequences if it does fail. But for, for others, for other people who are starting businesses, they are taking on risk. So then they feel like they can, reward that it's then fair to reward themselves with more of the profit. But I'm just saying like there could be a way if someone chose to, to share the profit at least much more with their, but they just, we just have a a moral culture where we've decided it's okay to pay some people very Mm -hmm. little. And we we could make that so that we did have different rules for minimum wage for uh, non-adults versus adults. And there could be, you know what I mean? There could Mm -hmm. be ways to make it better, but like, what would your what would your utopia look like? I mean, so, so, look, some people are into uh, worker co-ops, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is where the workers own the stuff. They, you know, they, they own a joint share of the whole apparatus. Um, I mean, the, a more traditional Marxist way is just, the, you know, the people, plural, right? All of us own the means of production. Um, we still go to work and do things, but because we all own the means of production, we are being, you know, our, the, you know, our, uh, our wage. And again, this is presuming there's still money, which is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, that is, you know, generated by working, but also we are part owners of everything. But, right? how, but how does that work? If that's something I've never understood. Like, how exactly does the ownership of the means of production work? Well, it's so it's important to say, um, 
Marx was very coy about what the post-revolutionary state looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, to the extent that there is a clear explanation of what communism looks like, the commune in communism is, um, you know, would appear to be um, semi-autonomous, decentralized bands of worker collectives that are governed by direct democracy and where the principle of from each according to his ability to each according to his uh, need rules. So that rather than being arranged into these big nation states um, or having formal governance, because, um, you know, I mean, here's, here's the thing that people understand. Marxism is a post-statist society. Mm-hmm. It is People associate Marxism with statism because... Um, the USSR and China. That's authoritarian have, right, They have these huge uh, bureaucracies, but um, in, a, in a truly you know post-revolutionary Marxist world, there is no state. The state doesn't exist. So I, would that work on like a thing where all, you say that there are these different groupings who are right. doing things then? So right. we just keep that to Dunbar's 150 or below, and then that way people are human to each other? So the thing is, like, you know, there's this is not spelled out in mm-hmm. the manifesto or anywhere else, not in Capital or anywhere. Um, you know, Marx said, uh, you know, that he was keeping the, uh, the post-revolutionary, uh, system purposefully vague in his writings because he didn't want to presume to know what the, um, uh, what the post-revolutionary world would look like. That he felt that, you know, you got to understand, like, this is a guy who's living in London in the mid-19th century. Okay. So... He's seeing simultaneously absolutely incredible new productive capacity thanks to capitalism. And it's really important to say that Marxism is not anti-capitalist. Marxism is post-capitalist, right? Um, Marx was fascinated by uh, capitalism's potential to spin up production. Um, He was adamant that any communist state had to go through a period of capitalism first to build the infrastructure that is then socialized. If he had been there in 1917 uh, in uh, in Russia, uh, if he'd been there for the for the Chinese Communist Revolution, Vietnam, he would have said for any of them, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. Okay, because uh, those places were trying to go from feudal societies directly to socialist societies. They don't work. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, he is vague about it. Um, I think the idea is just. The current order, again, the flip side of being in eighteen in eighteen fifties London and seeing all the productive capacity is seeing absolute human misery everywhere. Yeah. Right? Um child labor, people working sixteen hour days, terrible exploitations, zero worker protections. Poor um, health. Poor health, yeah. uh the devastation of the environment. Yeah. Um and so, you know, he wants to end exploitation. So this is another thing that I think people need to understand. Marxism has nothing to do with equality. Mm-hmm. There, there is no such thing as like people think that like they, they think okay, what is the goal of Marxism? And the first thing they say is equality. Marx, equality of outcome type. Yeah, things. equality. Yeah, Marx and Engels both independently said in their writing, equality makes no sense as a goal. Mm-hmm. Right. Any difference between two people, yes, the money in their pocketbook, but also how tall they are. Whether one likes cheese and the other one doesn't. Um, whether one's a good dancer. Whether one has a favorite color of red or another has a favorite color of blue. Any difference between two people can be represented as an 
inequality. Yeah. It's like even in the most egalitarian hunter-gatherer tribe, yeah. life still treats us all. We're all going right. to have a different experience. Right. Maybe. And so in, in a, in a post-revolutionary Marxist world, there's still summative inequality between people, right? What has been severed is the exploitative relationship inherent to uh, surplus value. Right, which I think we all, on a deep level, really want. You don't want to be exploited, and you don't want to be an exploiter. Right, yeah. People would sleep better without their ambience at night. But so to answer your question, you know, I wrote a thing not that long ago, and I told people, like, I don't know that if you meet a passionate young political person, if you meet some 18-year-old and they're really full of uh, zeal and they want to go out there and change the world. I don't think that it's a humane thing at this point to try to push them to become a Marxist. Mm-hmm. I am a Marxist and will remain one. There will always be people like me. But I don't know. I just don't think that it's a particularly useful f- frame if you're a young lefty who wants to change the world right now. It's a, it's a lot of bad. Well, because what is the, what would the revolution look like? Forget right. the post-revolution. What kind of revolution are we talking about? Right. I mean, the, the tr- traditional Marxist revolution is a cascading series of workers' revolutions where uh, uh, the um, – you know, a uh, spontaneously a bunch of workers take over their factory and liberate like with it. muskets. Uh, it depends. I mean, you know, hacking the, and drones. The, you know, no, I don't. I mean, a lot. Uh, there's a you know, there's a, an awful lot of stuff you can read out there about what interpreting whether or not you meet to the boss, right? And then you get everyone. That's actually happened to an improv theater. I know um, about. But. Well, <laughs> um, a lot of people will tell you that you don't need to have any violent. Um, uh, violence associated with the Marxist uprising may, may people as why they're into it, but um, it's a cascading. For the violence? Yeah, well, it's, it's it's a cascading series of workers' revolutions that happen and spontaneously, and that grow into a movement, and that sweeps across the world. And that's very important because um, you know. Uh, socialism in one country, which is again what was attempted in the USSR or China, um, is is not a Marx. It's not cool in Marxism, right? Yeah. That the, the social the 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 workers' revolution needs to dissolve the the fiction of borders for in order for this to work. And again, this stuff is not happening. It's not happening in our lifetime anyway. Um, I don't know why you would push this on a um, uh, a young person. Uh, it's a lot of baggage. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of math because of all the, the mm-hmm. economic stuff. If you're really going to get into it, um, and it's just not a useful frame. There's so much um, baggage with it uh, historically. You're going to turn off a lot of people with that stuff. I so. read a there was a one of those tiny you know free book leave it take a book whatever things, and it had like a intro to Marxism with some little cartoons. I would highly recommend for most people to just do that. Yeah. It had a, I right. think, historically accurate and measured take on what was going on. I mean, the other thing is, like, look, this is an economic fifty uh, economic theory um, from almost 200 years ago. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, the it is simply, like, if you look at someone like me, right, I am kind of a small business owner, kind of an independent contractor, I have no employees. Uh, I, Substack is taking part of my wages. I see you could say that I'm an exploited worker, but um, I don't really feel exploited. And also, like I'm capturing such a huge portion of the of the money generated from it that you know. So like these cat, I, I think that there's a, a a strong case of people who just make, hey, just look like this is like this described a world that doesn't exist anymore and it's not useful. So I just I you know. I would tell people to, to shy away from it. I, I, of course, want people who are thoughtful and who want to learn about a lot of left history and theory to be reading some Marx and to understand it. But, like, 
people sometimes ask me, like, oh, you know, why don't you just write more about Marxism on your Substack? And just like, I don't think that it's relevant or useful at this point. I have other oxes to gore, you know? Yeah. So I'm just interested in this because it's one of those things that people will say, like, you know, communism's bad and socialism is good or whatever. What is the definition of communism? Yeah. So, uh, again, the post-revolutionary state is underdrawn in all of it. But, um, yeah, it is a place where uh, the class structure has been dissolved, which does not lead to summative equality again, but where the class structure has been dissolved because the... Uh, uh, you know, the, the basic equation of surplus value, um, where workers create a value and then capitalists steal it from them, um, has been severed because everybody owns the productive apparatus of society. It's not, but some people say, uh, a, uh, the death of private property. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to come and take your favorite sweater and say it's communism. This is mine. Uh, what it is, is, is private ownership of the things that make society function. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that is socialized to everybody. So again, uh, <clears throat> you know, I can have my own house. I can have my own dog. I can have my own car. Um, but the, uh, the, the streets belong to everybody. The factories belong to everybody. In our era, like the server farms, right? Every All Google's server farms, that gets socialized for everybody. Um, how is that actually administered in a right. way that works? Um, that, that is not, I, I would argue that that is not at all clear from uh, actually existing um uh, Marxist theory from the time period, uh, but there are plenty of people today who sort of write about how it could work. Yeah, are there who who are the best people writing about how it could so work? So I would definitely read a guy like Seth Ackerman. Um, he is a big proponent of market socialism. So market socialism, look the of the many critiques of Marxism that are out there, probably the most salient one is just that central planning, which is what the USSR tried. Uh, to an extent what China tried uh, at the very beginning uh, of the unification, what the Vietnamese tried, which is just that like, okay, markets are bad, so we're going to have a bureaucrat who's going to say who gets what. So instead of having this complicated system of markets where your preferences organically emerge for how much you think something is worth and whether you're going to buy it or not, you know, you were, you will either buy the milk at $5 and not buy it at $10, whatever, Um <clears throat> Uh, we'll have central planning and we'll say, okay, some bureaucrat will say, you get, uh, uh, you get, uh, this much bushels of corn this month and you get this much, uh, oil for your furnace and this much whatever. And the problem is, is that, um, uh, uh, people are very bad at that. Yeah. Right? The, the, the level of top down coordination. Yeah. We see how bad our government people are at everything yeah. they currently do. Much so, less. Now, there's people who tell you that, it's actually pulled off very well. For example, there's a wonderful bu- book called The People's Republic of, of uh, Walmart. Mm-hmm. And it, one of its points is that like sufficiently large companies operate like their own internal Marxist economies. In other words, they have central planning that works. But um, a guy like Seth Ackerman says, you know, um, you can in fact have a socialist system that maintains the market uh, as the primary means through which goods are are delivered i wouldn't try to um uh uh summarize that for him but he has a in jacobin he had 
I think it's the red and the black. Um, it was called. It was a really good intro to what market socialism about. Is a guy Peter Frace who um, uh, he wrote a book called Four Futures. I think it is, and it's basically saying like, here's different paths that um, the United States could take. And one of those paths is a kind of uh, market socialism that would be that would serve a lot more people. Um, you know, one of the most respected guys, the guy who's quite old now, but uh, is Robert Brenner, uh, who wrote a book called um, Economics of Global Turbulism. And one of the things that was remarkable about that, about that book is in 2006, it pretty much perfectly predicted the financial crisis of 2008. Mm. It was one of the only uh, people who was able to do that. I heard that. Nostradamus did it, too. As well, <laughs> yes. Well, he predicted, he predicted all of it. Um, so, yeah, there's people out there that you can find and you can read. Um, I think most people are clear-eyed enough to know that we are going to be working for some sort of democratic socialism. Um, to me, right, um, the key is decommodification, which is you can't call it socialism unless you're moving things out of the market mechanism, which by which I mean. Um Right now, the provisioning of housing is if you have money, you can buy a house. And if you don't, you're homeless, right? If you can't pay the rent or buy a house, whatever. Um, we could move that out of the market mechanism um, and create a better system. It could be according to market socialist principles. I don't know enough about them. But one way or the other, it can't just be the government pays for stuff that's already in a uh, – it's still in an otherwise capitalist system. And people say, well, that's crazy, you're taking the housing out of the, uh, uh, but, um, for a good example is, um, it's plenty of people have water bills in plenty of places, but there's also plenty of places where there is no water bill, right? Yeah. The government built the water system. Everybody has access to it. Sometimes our government is capable of doing right. things. Yeah. Yeah. And we um, really only think about the DMV, et cetera. Right. When we think about how much they're failing us, but right. I mean, we, that's taking a lot for granted. Right. So that's or another another big one is taking medicine out of the market mechanism. So, um, right. you know, the NHS in Britain is, of course, embedded in market mechanisms, but fundamentally, um, and of course, this is eroded for a while, but um, the, the NHS is a socialized uh, healthcare system where it says, like, if you need sex, you sick, uh, if you are sick, you will receive care. It is publicly funded. Yeah. Right. And they provision doctors uh, to do it for you. Uh, it's not even single payer. I mean, this is like, you know, the NHS is like the actual uh, offices and doctors, whatever. These are, you know, working underneath the government umbrella. Uh, and it works by most accountings better than the United States system does. So, um, but to me, you have to be moving stuff out of market mechanisms for it to count as, as socialism. If it's just the government, pays for stuff if it's just like food stamps right um house stamps food stamps house stamps whatever um then you know that might be a more humane system but that's still just capitalism right mm -hmm. i mean social democracy ultimately is a more um humane vision of, of uh capitalism well it's but. in some way it's getting back even the, in this new complicated world but to if we were bands of hunter gatherers or when we were then or if, or let's not even say that, but like a, a village of people, like, well, if someone needs a house, you all build them a house. So that would be how we would feel toward each other as humans mm -hmm. if we were able to be 
living in a way that was mm-hmm. like psychologically healthy for us. The 150 group idea mm-hmm. is that then of course, if someone needs a house, you all just build them a house. Mm-hmm. And so we want to figure out how to live in a modern way where when someone needs a house, we just build them a house. Mm-hmm. But I still don't get how the fuck we're supposed to do that, but I'll check out those other guys. But okay. So then what is the difference between communism and socialism on a definitional level? Okay. On a definitional level. Um, so, so, so communism is a form of socialism. Socialism is an umbrella which contains uh, communism within within it. Um, communism is, is revolutionary socialism, for one thing. So, um, again, like in communism, it just it, it happens um, and um, it rolls out. Uh, this people's movement, this workers workers movement, spills out into the streets and takes over more and more industries and more and more places. And that is, you know, it happens in you know fairly short order. Um, of course, that doesn't actually happen in real life when, we, when it's been tried, but that's the idea. Whereas there's many, many forms of incrementalist socialism mm-hmm. where you are slowly apportioning more and more things uh, and uh, having more and more public ownership. Um, and is, that, is it fair to call these Scandinavian or whatever countries democratic socialists? No, I would I would not call them socialist countries. That's they, a weird thing to me. They are, they're fundamentally they are fundamentally. I think a lot of people who call themselves socialists, what they want is Nordic style Safety social net, democracy. Social yeah. democracy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I will say this, which like, doesn't sound be, seem bad. It seems no, like they're I, doing pretty well over I, there. I, I will say this: the the Nordic countries do control significantly more industries and businesses, etc than we do in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that is a form of public ownership. They also have these sovereign wealth funds, which are just basically these huge investment portfolios, for lack of a better term, um, of which everyone in those countries Benefit. controls a, a share. Yeah. And so those things are more sort of authentically socialist. But at the end of the day, you're still provisioning goods via the market. Right. And, you know, there's still fabulously wealthy people in those countries yeah. as well as poor people, although many fewer poor people. Right. And um, I think even the poor people are happier yeah. but, um, than the richer people. So I think, I think the revolutionary aspect is the biggest thing for people where people are afraid of the change. Um, it has certainly been interpreted many by, by many or most actually existing communist movements that um, – uh, now, Marx was a civil libertarian. Um, so was Engels. So was Rosa Luxemburg. Um, there's been, there's been other figures, um, who have been that way. Um, but you know, there's been a lot of, you know, if you don't give the people what they need, we'll kill you mm-hmm. in communist history. So there is a, when somebody like, uh, the, you know, one the founder of, uh, the democratic socialists of America, Michael Harrington, when he would create democratic socialism and talk about democratic socialism, his vision of it anyway, um, he was counterposing it against like, you know, we'll put you in the gulag if you don't. And so it's a the protection of civil liberties. Now, the interesting thing is that, like, the protection of civil liberties is now much less popular <laughs> among <laughs> social democrats than the actual, like, um, sort of aggressively revolutionary socialist bits. But, you know. Um, they still they want the gulag back. Yeah, but it's important <laughs> to say that, like, there's as many, there, there are many, many forms of, of, Socialism, and they have or have been for a long time, stretching back at least to the time of the French Revolution. It was a historical quirk that Marxism became the dominant vision of it in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it could have there were other there were other uh, 
revolutionary socialisms that weren't Marxism. There were, uh, there's of course, there's anarchism, which is uh, not the same as socialism, but it is uh, certainly has a lot of the same fans. A lot of the same fans. <laughs> a lot, you know, the same like, like aesthetic vibe. Uh, yeah. Now we look at figures like Bakunin or, or Kropotkin as people who essentially are these hybrid figures who are sort of borrowing from both. Um, but yeah, communism is the is the program of Marxism, and Marxism is a philosophical and economic theory that arose in the middle of the nineteenth century and is associated with Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Socialism is a big, broad, capacious idea about greater shared ownership and deeper societal commitment to uh, keeping people, you know, fed, clothed, and happy. That would be really cool if we could have websites for companies, at least major companies, where you could show how much the owners of the company make versus their employees right. and then have a little thing programmed where you could say, if this person like made less, how much mm-hmm. could he play all of these employees? I mean, that could be quite complicated, of course, because people pay themselves and these stock options right. and other things that make it... You know, even just a lifestyle, private things that get paid for by the company, you know, then do we factor that into the... I mean, this is another thing that that communism, that Marxist Marxist, uh, philosophy predicts, right, which is that um, uh, over time inequality will grow um, because the, you know, the the capitalist always wants the rate of exploitation to uh, expand because that's what makes them uh, wealthier. And also... Um, as they become wealthier, they have greater and greater control over, um, you know, the so-called democratic process. Right. Um, uh, and uh, it's another another thing that's core to Marxism is like, you know, distrust of the legitimacy of any of the outcomes of traditional liberal democratic process. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we really are in late stage capitalism right now. We are. Uh, that's like the term you hear all the time. So, will you explain that real quick? Sure. Um, I, I don't think that it, I don't think it's used very rigorously at all. Sure. Um, but there is a sense in which, um, uh, if you look at, for example, financialization. So we, you know, like the 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 the, the, ho- the housing crisis, the um, financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, there you have. So again, if you believe in the rate of the ten, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, um, one of the things that you know is done in late capitalism. So early capitalism again is like London eighteen thirties or whatever, where you know you're sh- you're shifting, you're having a very quick shift from you know there's still plenty of the places in the world that are feudal, um, and you have this sort of old mercantile system, and now suddenly you have this capitalist system which is exploding and it has all this uh, productive potential. Uh, in late capitalism, profit is, you know, becoming harder to come by in real terms, right? Um, so you participate in things like financialization where you create all these absurd, this absurd number of bizarre and complicated, um, finance market techniques in order to find some place to squeeze more profit. That seems to be increasingly what we're doing right. in this country is right. so, stuff that's not producing anything useful in reality. Right. So like Bitcoin would be a really good, you know, harbinger of late capitalism where it's um, the old school capitalist, you know, make something, exploit your workers and sell it at a higher profit than what you paid for it, where this is no longer perceived to be a, a good enough return. Right. 
Um, and so you have to create a whole new class of wealth out of thin air, right? Hey, Twitter tried to ask me if I had an NFT I'd like to display today on Inter- my Twitter. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but, so like, you know, 10 years ago, no one's heard of Bitcoin or NFTs, right? But capitalism has created a whole new vector of value. And so, to me, late capitalism entails this like meta period, this right. postmodern period of capitalism where um, there has to be uh, everyone, you know, there has to be this constant new invention of ways of to create value where it no, where, you know, previously didn't exist because the old means of creating value that, you know, again, if you go to Econ 101 class in college, they'll say, well, you have a widget factory and you make widgets. And, the, you know, that is like a very small portion of um, how people get rich now. Right. People don't get rich by owning factories. People get rich with um, mortgage-backed securities and derivatives right. and hedge funds. And, you know, it's like, all number pushing, a lot of right, number pushing, right. essentially. The, right. In other words, like the the more abstract and incredibly complicated and hard to learn it is where value is coming from the later in capitalism we are yeah and it does i mean yeah the basic idea of we need growth uh after never ending growth and ideally growth that's faster than the growth before is cancerous you know and we it's unsustainable obviously in the long term and then at the same and at the same time everybody knows that you know Monopoly is a miserable game, typically, that mm-hmm. leads to families disowning each other. And yet right. we're still trapped in this game we don't really want to be playing. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is like, again, like, as you just said, um, it's, you can't just be profitable. The rate of profit has to increase all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a, this is a very common thing in the marketplace, uh, the, excuse me, the, um, stock market. Um, you'll have a company that has a sort of specific and narrow business and makes money in a specific and narrow way. Um, and they, uh, uh, are maintaining the same steady profit rate. So every year they're making more money than they, than they, than they pay out. They're making money. Um, the value of the stock drops because right. of that. In other words, the inability to grow the rate at which your profits Right. go up uh, is perceived to be a weakness because again to yeah. keep the machine going um, you know this is if you you know I don't want to get into a whole thing about this but like um, the Marxist th- you know, theory of uh, uh, imperialism mm-hmm. for example um, you know why do capitalist countries keep um, in the old days just straight up invading a country uh, and uh taking over and exploiting resources uh, or in a more modern sense, like uh, say for China in, in Africa right now, where China is um, aggressively expanding into, into Africa with lending a lot of loose money. Um, uh, again, like you have to keep finding a new horizon. You have to keep finding a new place to, uh, new market to exploit. So one of the things that has been a kind of a hiccup in the global economy has been that, um, you know, for a long time, China was a producing class and they're still the producing class for many things. So a ton, a ton, a ton of cheap goods get made in China. They're cheaper uh, because uh, you can pay Chinese people a lot less money than you can pay American people. You can pay Chinese people a lot less money because 
um, the, the country has been in immense poverty for mm-hmm. um, most of, you know, the last several hundred years. Um, however, now all that producing class is making China richer, right? And uh, many people will tell you that, like, it's core and key to the, the new economy, that you know, the upcoming economy, that all those, you know, the Chinese people who were the producing class, they need to become the new consuming class, right? Mm-hmm. They need to be the people who can buy the stuff. That, yeah. You know, the trouble with that is that um, if they're going to become the consuming class, someone else has to become the producing right. class. We're always going to kick that can down. Like, like, like Vietnam or Bangladesh right. now, right? There's a few more countries left we right. can exploit. Well, this is the issue is the world's only so big, right? right? And the, so the, the, the sense that there's a rapacious need to constantly explain, ex- expand the horizons of profitability that cannot be satisfied, which I think is one of the most uh, can, compelling uh, elements of the, of the Marxist critique. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. It just, it just has seemed like we've been kicking the can of who the who the new. But then, so what's what's going on in the countries where we could exploit them more next or whatever? We, they could be making more stuff next. What are those people doing right now? Well, so here's the thing: is like, I mean, you know, the rejoinder, the capitalist rejoinder to all this stuff is like, yes, like, look, um, inequality is going through the roof in developed countries, but we're, we keep we raise the floor so much mm-hmm. that. Um, Living conditions go up so much because of nine cents a day is better than two. Right. Yeah. And so that, in other words, that the we that you know we've we've swept tons of people out of terrible poverty, and so you know inequality doesn't matter. Um, I think that that is uh, uh, too rosy for a variety of reasons. One is, as I previously said, wealth inequality becomes political inequality. Right. In other words, enough money. You have enough money at the top; they can essentially be inoculated from politics and take it over if they want to. Um, second, uh, you know, it's not clear that uh, we can ever get people off beyond the hump of okay, we've raised some people out of extreme poverty into poverty. Um, we are, what we have not really seen is the transformation of very poor countries into middle class countries. Right. There just aren't really many middle class countries in general anymore in just the same way that the middle class of the american people have been have been hollowed out what are a few countries that used to be middle class and now are not middle class they're like rich now no i'm saying you sent there's some who are were middle class and are and are no longer yeah i mean like so like uh that's a good question um uh but the, the problem is is like it really this all stuff all depends on how you define who is being fed here? Okay, yeah. so again, to return to China, um, China has had an economic miracle. Um, it may now be the largest economy in the world over the United States, depending on how you count. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been the creation of millions and millions of middle class or upper middle class people in China. There's been uh, an explosion in billionaires in China. Um, however, there are still more. Uh, Chinese people in poverty than there are Americans, period, right? Mm. There are still hundreds of millions of people who live agrarian lifestyles, rural lifestyles, subsistence farming. Um, you know, uh, they get left out of the Chinese data in almost every way because the Chinese still want to include them in that data. How are they doing in their agrarian <laughs> lifestyles? Like, I mean, they're, they're absolutely dirt poor, yeah. Right. I mean, China is still a fairly uh, poor country. I mean, mm-hmm. I... Um, not that long ago, I looked and, uh, you know, like Jamaica still had a higher uh, median income than, than China. So mm-hmm. it is now, look, you could certainly say, like, look, it, they were a complete economic basket case, um, 
30 or 40 years ago, and they've become this economic powerhouse. But um, the fact remains that, like, you'd still rather be middle class in America than upper middle class in Chinese. The, the, the real issue is, I think, in, in the, 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 the sort of bigger picture is that, um, you know, <clears throat> at some point, inequality sort of mandates lower uh, living conditions on the bottom than are necessary, even if you concede that the absolute worst are getting better, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the sort of the socialist p- perspective is always like, okay, um, we have, uh, you know, all this growth and we have people getting fabulously wealthy at the top and um, pretty stagnant wages um, for people in most of the, in the distribution. Why not just take the money at the top and, disp- and spread it around more evenly? I think that that's a, you know, I think that there is a tremendous room to do that without having any kind of a socialist revolution, right? Again, like um, Denmark, which has absurdly low poverty and is the most uh, uh, economically equal country in the OECD, right? Mm-hmm. So in the developed world, it's the most uh, developed country. It's the most uh, equal country. Denmark uh, still has like billionaires, mm-hmm. right? There's still like super, super rich people in Denmark. There's no reason why we couldn't squash the distribution some. I think what a lot of people, and you can call them socialists, but they're maybe just liberals, but it doesn't really matter. I think what a lot of people say is, okay, like, look, like, there's no reason we have to turn off the engine. We can keep the engine on and keep the growth happening, but where we can just sort of squash people at the the top down, they'll still be rich, but then spread that money out to bring people up. We just have a more equal distribution, Uh, unfortunately. Rich people are, again, um, very well represented in politics. And they, they get kind of addicted to keeping that much. And they, they get addicted to keeping that much. And un- unfortunately, um, the American system is very much m- mandated against change because of the, the Senate and uh, the Electoral College, etc. And uh, also... Americans all believe they're going to be rich someday. Right. And they tend to vote and act as though that, based on that idea rather than their present reality. Yeah. So it's hard to get really major economic reforms going in this country. Should we, is there, because sometimes you hear that we can't be like Denmark because, you know, Denmark is a pretty homogenous country, at Mm. least more than ours, with its own history and norms and social capital already or whatever. Is there a way, like, is it true that we can't just kind of move toward Denmark if we had, but it's, maybe it's what you're saying is that the, the political power is held by people who have an interest right. in us being in their own, I think they're wrong about their self-interest. I mean, but. look, like, I think the important thing to say, that you're referencing a very long-standing objection, which says that we can't have it because Americans don't look like each other in the way that all Danes do. They're like, oh... Scandinavian people. I love people. that. You know, all Danes look alike. You yeah, know what I mean? <laughs> right. I mean, first of all, there's actually, there's there's much less ethnic homogeneity in those places than people think, seem to think. Right. There is some diversity uh, for sure. Um, particularly recently, there's now been a lot of... Now that there's been refugees. Yeah. Um, but I also just think this idea that, like, people's willingness to entertain economic redistribution goes down uh, as the country gets more diverse is just, like, empirically completely unproven. Mm-hmm. I, I just... That is a, a claim that is constantly made, but it seems to me to be an empirical question, and it doesn't seem like there's any evidence to suggest that that's true. Well, there, I know there are some studies that show that, like, 
when people live in more diverse places, or maybe they put them in psychology undergrads in little groups that were racially, you know, mm-hmm. diverse or not, and people and the people started getting like less trustful and whatever. like you know there are some vague studies, but who knows? It's one of those things where maybe everyone made a bunch of hay out of a study that in a few years will be like, remember that study? It was completely bullshit. Someone mm-hmm. finally looked into it or it's never been replicated, whatever. So it's always hard to say with that kind of stuff. But it does strike me every time I hear that argument is kind of like, I don't know. I want my fellow man, whatever he looks like to, yeah. you know, yeah. but we also have these rich people who maybe get a little addicted to that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we just need to somehow find a way to get, a spiritual growth plan happening for these. I don't, but you know, like Elon Musk the other day tweeted, Hey, everyone says I should just like give my money to fix things. Tell me how to do it. No. So I was kind of, I'm like that. Cause like, you, you do wonder, I mean, right. I don't know. He's so smart. Doesn't he have, I, don't know. I mean, I think the thing is, is um, I think you can come up with a lot of justifications for keeping what you have. Yeah. And I don't think that these people are ever going to be able to be completely honest brokers about why they oppose redistribution. Um, the, the simple reality is that, um, people are self-interested by nature mm-hmm. and, you know, they always have the claim that if they didn't have, you know, the promise of fabulous wealth, they would stop working. I think that's bullshit. I, yeah. I think that people are motivated by a desire to be productive and to work. Yeah. And I also think that like, if you said, okay, the most, the most, uh, rich you can be is a hundred million instead of a hundred billion. Yeah. Like they're not going to stop and say, Oh, well, well I don't want any, enough. I don't want any of it yeah. now. Then yeah. They're, they're, they're still going to want the hundred, the hundred million. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, look, we have a basic scenario in this country. Uh, conservatives are unpopular on economics in many, many ways. Um, again, like if, you know, people are actually broadly in favor, even people who self-identify as conservatives mm-hmm. are often bro- broadly in favor of all manner of lefty um, economic policies. Um, but conservatives are popular on social issues. And so uh, conservatives front the social issues yeah. and use that to get the economic And, the, and the stupid um, Democrats are also fronting social issues that's when they exactly should be right. fronting economic that's, issues. That's exactly right. And that's the problem. So but the at, media people can't figure out that no one likes them. Right. Yeah, because that, online and right. on the things that they control, that's what everyone believes. But if you talk to people in real life ever, right. you'll discover that their ideas are quite unpopular. I mean, the thing is, if you look at Donald Trump, um, you know, he was someone who inflamed the passions of people. Because of his social policies and his, you know, brutishness and his boorishness and stuff. Um, and he, you know, talking about calling, you know, people from South America rapists or whatever. But, you know, he. I think it was more Central America, but. Yeah, well, his, his, um, his whole, uh, his biggest accomplishment was getting tax cuts for the rich past, right? Yeah. And that is how the Republican Party functions. Yeah. They do stuff about CRT and gay marriage and whatever. Yeah. And that wins them elections in which they then use to um, make things economically better for the rich. Right. Um, the Democrats uh, uh, could run on a populist economic message and maybe just not – not change their minds, but minimize, minimize. Some, some of the inflammatory social stuff. And it doesn't need to be part of the day mm-hmm. one thing to sign things about you. Yeah. 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 The, the, the trouble is that we saw what that looks like. And it's the Bernie campaign. And what happened during the Bernie campaign is that um, liberals constantly ripped him apart for apparently, for supposedly not caring about 
uh, sexism or racism or gender issues or whatever. Right. Um, and so it's the, there's a complete lack of basic strategic sense about, you know, what actually is popular and is not and how to present that to everybody else. Right. What do you think it is? I mean, the most cynical thing that I feel is that the people on the left are so busy jerking themselves off and getting likes from other people by mm-hmm. showing themselves to be the most mm-hmm. good at taking the bad guys down, that right. they don't care what its actual effects are. Is that true or no? Yeah, I mean, I just think that, like, um, okay, so, like, you know, they just, people, liberals and leftists on Twitter um, don't have the slightest idea how unpopular yeah. their policy preferences are. Well, so if you see TV and the internet, right. then your internet, you know. Right. Yeah. So a good example is affirmative action. I support affirmative action, but um, so it's, you know, the Supreme Court is considering a case against Harvard. They may, there's a chance that they'll simply outlaw um, those practices. Um, everybody's up in arms about it. Um, again, I think that would be bad, but... Um, uh, in large majorities, Americans oppose affirmative action, um, depending on the poll that you look at. Um, in some cases, even black Americans oppose affirmative action. I mean, it also just depends on what you mean by affirmative action right, yeah. exactly. Um, in California, a, a couple of years ago, they had a re- public referendum. This is true blue California, you know, maybe the most liberal state in the nation. They, they had a public refer- re- referendum to bring back affirmative action. It lost by two thirds to a third. So I just got, they got smoked. <laughs> That's so crazy. if you're going to talk about that topic, you have to be prepared to talk about the country as it really exists. Mm-hmm. Instead, what we'll get is, um, you know, an entire profession of media class people who are to the left on this issue of 99% of the American people yeah. and yelling about anyone who suggests there's any legitimacy to the debate at all. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's one of the things about the left that is most annoying right now is that we're supposed to not even have the debates, which is a crazy thing to do. Because if you want to have strong positions, you need to have the debates to improve your ability to argue for it at the very least. Have you ever heard of the iron law of institutions? Probably, but let's remind us. So it's an idea from a guy named John Schwartz. um, And the iron law of institutions is the idea that um, anyone within an institution... If you actually look at how people actually behave, um, they will always do what's best for their position within the institution rather than what's best for the institution itself. So like a classic example might be a guy who's the head of a uh, of his own department in a business. He comes to realize over time that that um, department is uh, uh, redundant, that they're paying a lot of money for a department that they don't doesn't need to exist. Um, he can go to his boss and say, let's dissolve the department and he'll just get installed, you know, you know, in, in an enviable job, but he'll no longer be the head of the, of the department. And what you find if you look at the world is people don't do that, right? Because he would lose standing within the institution, even if it was better than the, for the institution, you don't do that, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, the iron law of institutions, for liberals, like media liberals, it tells us um, uh, it would be better for liberalism if they would moderate their messages, if they would be more uh, accepting of um, uh, 
of debate, if they would admit that the other side sometimes has a point, if they um, didn't act like their positions were so obvious about everything. But instead, you know, that would help liberalism overall. But it would hurt their position within liberalism to do that. Because right now, liberalism, the way that you advance yourself is you uh, just tell everybody, um, you know, what the liberal bleeding edge uh, idea is. You act like it's completely obvious that that's right. You ridicule anyone who says anything differently. And so they're doing what's in their best interest because it makes them appear to be a, a more righteous soul within it. But they're hurting their actual overall cause. So sad. So basically what you're saying is these liberals need to grow up and learn that life is really about being of service. Mm-hmm. I, that think that, I, think that, I think that they need to understand that, um, you know, look, like uh, I would put myself to the left of all those people yeah. on the issues that matter. But I don't pretend that the country wants what I want. Right. I don't think that the country what is wants. The word? I don't know how to figure out a word for this. Like when you want to say like leftist, cultural, liberals. Me? No, I mean the people who like the ones we're talking about. Yeah. But like the, the people who like have that general team. Yeah. Um, and operate that way. But what word should we be using when we wanted to talk about those people? I mean, I like to say identitarians a lot. Identitarians, be- because yeah. they're you know they're they are not actually you know leftists in any meaningful way. Um, they are just, they adopt extreme positions on anything that's connected to identity. Um, because again, like if that is, con- those are considered the most emotionally charged and that's just the greatest yeah. reward for them saying. It. Oh, I actually, so John McWhorter just got a new book, um, woke racism mm-hmm. and he calls these people the elect. Yeah. I like that because it's kind of like the elite, but not a lot of them aren't elite, right. but they are the elect right. and yeah. they know what's best for all of us, right. and whoever elected them seems to be themselves or whatever. But yeah, yeah. but I think that the, the, the they need like you know I I I I would love a Marxist revolution. I want have wanted that my entire life, but I am under absolutely no uh, illusion that the people of the United States want that. Mm-hmm. And what they seem completely unwilling to do is to consider the possibility that. Um, their passion about an issue does not mean that the debate is over and that it does not mean that most people agree with them. In fact, most people don't agree with them, as we saw with defund the police, which became a uh, rigidly enforced consensus opinion among media liberals in 2020. and then it ended up being that all the polling said it was a terribly unpopular idea, including among black Democrats who, yeah. who rejected it in very large margins. But the, they could not comprehend the possibility that they can be wrong on a social issue. Yeah, I mean, I just I asked a number of friends who were defund the police types, and I guess still are. And, you know, essentially that it's just they all just say, well, you use the money instead. For counselors or whatever. Right, yeah. And I'm saying, even if you said that in an adult way, where we talked about, you know, what we would really need to do with the money, still, what are you going to do? Like an Indiana Jones-style switch? Right, yeah. Like, the consequences of there not being cops will still be there. When, you know, we can't, so mm-hmm. we'd have to invest all that money first right. that you're saying would work 
and still have the place. I mean, I think we could definitely look into having fewer, much better trained police who are much better screened for uh, personality issues from wars or whatever that make them too trigger happy. So there are a number of things that we could do. I think we could make the police wear pink. And that might help a little bit. Mm. Just, I mean, first of all, it did happen on Reno 911 once. Was, mm. um, but also, you think of the Stanford prison experiment and how people behave when you put them in little cop outfits. Mm-hmm. It's a little dark, mean, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, well, we give these people mean little outfits. It's a little harder to take yourself seriously in a pink and white outfit. And I, I know there's countries, I think, that do that with their mm-hmm. cops, where they do have them in friendlier outfits, and there's a friendlier relationship. Right, How much yeah. easier is it to smile at a cop and say hi right. if he's wearing pink? Right. And then he reflects that back to you. We have a feedback loop of err. Right. So. I mean, the other thing is, like, look, I don't like cops at all. and Yeah, uh, I mean, no one does. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I hate violence, but, you know, if there is some school shooter shooting up his right. high school, I would hope that there are people who are deputized to shoot that person in yeah. the head. You know what I'm saying? Like I, are I, SWAT teams not cops? Are those guys bastards? You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Or, or, but also like, you know, there's also just all these incoherent stances. Like a lot of defund the police people are like really big on like, we should have a, a vaccine mandate or, you know, it's like, right. okay, then who, who's <laughs> enforcing the mandate? Like, like them. Right. I mean, they'll it, get on an app and tell on the person next to them. Right. right. I mean, like <laughs> these are people who love, to get people in trouble yeah. about things. Well, that's why I would say, uh, all, all cops are bastards. How about the PC police? Right, yeah. Here's a mirror. But I mean, but it's like, you know, but, but, but like they they are incredibly mad. They want, you know, defunding the police, dismantle the carceral state, um, total, po- you know, police, um, a, a total prison reform, uh, you know, keep people out of jail so that they can be reformed. Um Except, you know, if someone has been accused of rape, in which case they want that person. That could be a fun world. Only the rapists are in prison. Right. At least we could, if we could actually right. get the rapists in prison, then, you know. Right. But the thing is, I think it's really essential to say is like, it doesn't, these, these contradictions don't really matter because they all know you're not, we're never going to defund the police. Right? right. Like it's, it's a belief that is predicated on knowing that it's not going to happen. So you don't have to think through the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Um, you mentioned the matrix, like in the beginning of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember exactly what our context was at the time of you do. But I also was reading uh, the last thing I read on the way here was when you were talking about Ghostbusters and the matrix mm-hmm. and a little thing, maybe a few weeks ago. I don't know. Um, and I didn't see, I've actually only seen like the first and a half matrix movies, mm. but you know, so I haven't seen this. What's the new one? Uh, Matrix Resurrection. They just they have that's the R word that they're on, isn't yeah. it? Always, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever would be next. So, and you said it was quite heavy-handed in terms of the politics. Yeah. And it's, these are some of the politics that not everyone agrees with that are being shoved down. Yeah. Or is it? I mean, the thrust of that piece was just that, like, I don't care about the politics. I care about how artlessly and clumsily they were wedged into the movie right like like i say in the piece like you know if you want to have lgbtq uh uh themes in your movie that's great i I love a lot of movies like that you know like the movies of um like john waters for example which i love but um in the matrix they like they say you know 
the future will be skies full of rainbows. <laughs> and they say it twice, you know? How far and, apart in the movie do they say it? Because I remember reading that and being like, oh, that's... Like, like five minutes apart. Five, yeah. I don't know. That's the worst amount of time like, it could and be. And this, this is in the, scene, the context of a scene that doesn't need to exist where, like, at the end, the badass female character who's taken over for the male character shows up at the face of the white male patriarch and literally punches his mouth off so he can't speak. And so it's like, you know, I don't, like... Uh, Wait, so the white male patriarch is Neo or Neil, is... Yeah, Neil, okay. uh, Neil uh, Patrick Harris. Yeah. Oh, Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, wait, so who's he... Like, he, he's playing like the the head computer like program or whatever. Okay. For a like moment, he, I was wondering if like, what's her name again? Um, the woman. Oh, Perry Ann Moss, Trinity. No, it's Trinity. If yeah. Trinity was punching Neo in some, no, <laughs> yeah, no, taking over. Okay, so it's, she's punches Neil Patrick Harris's mouth off to d- demonstrate that men are no right. longer. Right. So like, he's he is he is very clearly the like. The authority figure who's trying to determine everything for everyone, but uh, she comes and she shuts him up good. And basically, they just deliver a speech at him for, you know, 10 minutes of movie time where they just sort of say, hey, everything's different now. Rainbows in the skies. Everyone can do what they want. You know, your time is over, white man, whatever. And it's just like, again, if you could, if you had a movie that delivered that, that particular message symbolically and with a little grace, um, you know, I'd be cool with it, but it's it's unfortunately if you criticize a movie for having those politics, then you're accused of being conservative instead of like right. wanting the politics to be good. The people who made the Matrix were uh, there's two trans women now, right? Yeah, right. Doesn't feel like there's some kind of <laughs> all good and well to be against right. the Anglo man now, um, right? That you're on this team full of rainbows. Right. And yeah, it almost just feels like maybe remember that the villain is in you too. Mm-hmm. That, you know, read some young or something. Right, yeah. Does I, I don't know. I feel like that for I, a lot of the left, really, or a lot of the elite, the left, yeah, yeah. identitarians. I agree. Yeah. It's just like a reversal of <laughs> yeah. who's the bad guy. Yeah. But it's obvious to a lot of us what's going on. But how do we tell these people? How do we how do we get through to the people who are who want the gulags, who want to throw the first stone? I mean, they refuse re- religion, Buddhism, even would. Right. But um, look, I just think that uh, you have to understand that this is not politics in any meaningful sense. That um, this this sort of wing of of I don't know identity liberalism or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that people lack meaning in their lives. I think that a lot of the authentic ways through which people have traditionally, like religion, um, instilled meaning in their lives have been tossed aside, discarded, ironized, treated as ridiculous, treated as um, uh, as antiquated. We thought we were so smart yeah. to get rid of all of our ability yeah. to have community. And so now, if you you know, if you're someone who is like a typical human, like who am I? What's my value? You know. Why does my life matter? Um, you now have this um, forum in the internet in which you can assert your value is better than everyone with something that kind of appears vaguely political and which has a lot of connections to sort of liberatory discourse. But the whole point is to make yourself look like one of the good ones. Right. And, uh, you know. But it's like you're inherently 
propping up the system that there are people who are the good ones yeah. and that there are people who are the bad ones. Yeah, and it's um, it's completely disconnected from anyone's material life. So, Yeah, oh, that's the thing. It just feels like uh, everyone thought they were so smart to get rid of God and religion. I mean, you know, of course, like the, the people who were then labeled the new atheists or the four horsemen or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, every, it was so self-congratulatory. I mean, mm-hmm. just jerking off in our faces about how dumb everyone was for God. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's all fine and good. Um but we do need meaning and purpose and community and whatever and all these things that we get out of um, religions or that we got out of religions. And some people still get, although I don't know, you know, there's obviously a million problems with religions. But when we talk about getting rid of the, you know, saving the baby out of the bathwater mm-hmm. uh, or sorry, when we talk about, you know, yeah, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, like, I think people toss that that phrase out in this way of like, well, we better make sure not to, you know, lose the baby with the bathwater as if getting the bathwater out is the most important part of the equation. The baby is the most important part of the equation. Right. We were so focused on the bathwater. Right. We're like, we forgot to save the baby. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I remember, I remember when I lived in Boston, like trying to find people who were figuring out that there were like secular churches who were trying to do things and it was mm-hmm. a, and that the hymns are appalling i mean right, yeah. i love dan dennett but he anyway yeah um so what do we do i mean do we all create our own hippie alan watts type thing that we and then create community how do we do this i don't know dude i um uh i'm an atheist and i don't do the whole substitute for church thing um i do understand that most people need uh some sort of structure to explore these things i don't know i think that um a epidemic problem right now is people who lack a sense of self um you know people express this a lot of times like anxiety there's an anxiety epidemic but to me a lot of it is just like a lot of people are just desperately insecure with who they are and don't perceive themselves to be people of value they don't live their own lives they don't sort of i mean to me you know i don't i don't know anything about like i don't i don't wouldn't consider myself a person with a lot of Mm self-esteem like i um uh in fact dislike very many things about myself um but i do uh feel like i have self-possession like a sort of like a sense of self-ownership in the in the sense that like i feel that i am that i dictate who i am on a day-to-day basis. And I think too many people don't feel that way. And they feel that, you know, because they're not dictating who they are, there is a desperate need to find some some external structure to give it to them. But all they have in their atmosphere now is, you know, Twitter um, and, um, you know, just like the internet is their only place where they go to which, in which they are like become differentiated, right? And like, I just think that like going to the internet for external validation is a really bad idea. So maybe all anyone really needs is to figure out how best to get work that they can find meaningful and can work, you know, work for them um, and have good relationships and make sure to be, you know, trying to read books and edify yourself or whatever it is you can do to be growing mm-hmm. and then have some real like hobbies, interests, passions, whatever, mm-hmm. like, and, if, and, and, and then you can find community in your, either your job and or your neighborhood. We could do that more right. and or 
uh, you know, hobbies, interests, passions, you know, like I have a comedy community, which actually reminds me a lot of my Mormon network as a child, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, community is important, but you don't have to get it through one of these religions. And most of the churchy things, you know, are pretty much Mm -hmm. miserable failures on a lot of levels. But I think I was lucky that I was raised to see that my value is independent of what I do. I think a big part of the problem here is that you have generations of helicopter kids, kids who had helicopter parents, where um, they were constantly pushed to success in all the things that they did. Um, the problem was is, is that, number one, sometimes you don't succeed. And it's, if, you've, if you've bound up your sense of self in uh, how well you succeed, then when you fail, it's, it's uh, a disaster. But also, at some point in life, like you just you stop having so many sort of um, box checking moments in your life where you say, yes, this is the external thing that I do. Like they, they don't have, like, you know, a lot of people, they're super stressed out and unhappy when they're get in high school and they're pushing really hard to get into Yale. Um, but that's still, that gives their life structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't have that anymore once they get to a certain stage of adult, adulthood yeah. where those external markers of doing the right thing are gone and they don't know what to replace it with. And I think that that's, you know, you've got to explain help people to understand that like if you are if you see yourself as the sum of the various things that you accomplish in in sort of like rigid structures of success or not then you're always going to be psychologically uh unsettled because you can never feel fully comfortable yeah yeah i mean it kind of like the social media games make it so obvious because there's literal just numbers there all Mm -hmm. the time we it sucks because it's like clearly a, a very healthy thing to do would be to get rid of all social media. But yes. then if you are, say, a comedian or a podcaster or a writer or whatever, mm-hmm. you then can't do that. So. Yeah. I mean, I, you know. Unless you're already. You know, yeah, that's the thing. I, I'm, I'm, I, I would definitely be willing to go forward with in no social media world. But, um, I, you know, I have, uh. The advantage of having been in this a long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, people are like, oh, why do you make so much money in, on Substack? And I don't. And I just, one of the things is, I mean, I do think I'm really good at what I do, but I also tell them, like, I just, I started in 2008, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, I just done a lot of dues paying, you mm-hmm. know, so. Yeah. So real. Um, that is so much of any game, isn't it? It's just outlasting. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brady. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, tell them again now. This will be easier. Tell them again now where to go. Uh, yeah. Uh, you can check me out at freddydebore.substack.com. Um, and you can check out my book. It's called The Cult of Smart. Uh, it's not very expensive on Amazon right now, so go check it out. for listening to the end of the episode very cool very cool of you if you want to support the podcast everything is being switched over to the new name so if you want to follow us on instagram it is politically now on patreon it's patreon.com slash politically 
Substack, I haven't figured out how to switch the name yet. So it's still wrongqo.substack.com for now. So cool of you if you want to subscribe and give us money. I try to put out stuff on those uh, Substack and wrong and Substack and Patreon regularly, but it also just depends. And so for now, I if you're subscribing, you're just supporting me and getting what you're getting. So thank you so much for anyone who wants to do that. And if you enjoy getting this podcast for free, but you want to just send a few bucks without subscribing to anything, you can always Venmo me at Gay Ariel, G-A-Y-A-R-I-E-L-L-E. But even if you're broke or you just don't think I deserve money yet, you can still support the podcast in other ways. You can, of course, follow, subscribe on Apple, on Spotify, on wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can rate us on Apple. You can also rate us on Spotify now. They've added that. And, of course, you could tell a friend, oh, writing a review is the best. If you want to write a little review, that'd be sick. You can tell a friend about the podcast in person. That's the best. Uh, if you want to post about it on social media, that'd be awesome. If you want to reach out to me and tell me how to make the podcast better or be uh, a comedian mentor of mine or <laughs> whatever, I am always open to help. And if you are listening to this podcast and you go, hey, Freddie is wrong about X, Y, and Z about the economy, and I want to come and uh, explain all that, then please reach out to me at ariel.norman at gmail.com, A-R-I-E-L-L-E-N-O-R-M-A-N, gmail, and let me know that you want to be a guest on the podcast. I would love that. I Again, so the new idea, even though this wasn't exactly how this episode was, but the idea is that we are going to evolve the conversation by people coming on and making their cases and me pushing back and and also seeing where I agree and disagree. But then anyone who listens to that who at home is shaking their fist and going, hey, they got this wrong, or hey, they haven't thought about this, etc., just reach out to me and let me know you want to be on the podcast. Or if you know that you're not articulate, then, you know, and but you know someone who is who could make the case that you want to make, talk to them about it and see if they want to be on the podcast. I would love that. So, yeah, I think that covers it. Instagram... Patreon, Substack, tell a friend, rate, review, subscribe, be on the podcast. Yep. All right, y'all. Thanks for being here. Come back next week when I get to talk to a trans chick who is a pedophile, but a non-offending one, who actually is super cool and intelligent and delightful. All right. See you next time.